1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from
0: HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and today I want to bring to you a classic episode of Tech Stuff. It's been a while since I've dug into the archives and brought up something that was recorded before. And I tend to avoid that if I can, but we've got a lot going on at how stuff works. As I record this, the entire editorial team is all abuzz about our presence at South by Southwest. By the time you hear this, we will have gone and returned. But, uh, I, I, in order to get everything done, I need to do a quick rerun. And that's why I'm going to look at this classic episode, Tech Stuff, looks at industrial light and magic. That means you're going to hear the one and only Chris Paulette, my former co-host who, uh, phenomenal guy, Great co-host. So if you haven't heard any classic episodes, prepare to be amazed at his wit and humor. Also, I just want to give you a quick update to the story. So uh, I'll do that when we get back at the end of the episode. So please enjoy this classic episode. I'll rejoin you at the end. See you in a bit. So, yeah, we wanted to talk today about a special visual effects studio named uh, Industrial Light and Magic. And the reason why we decided to cover this particular topic is that, well, uh, Industrial Light and Magic is... Part of uh, uh, well, it's one of the many things that George Lucas created, yes. uh, including things like Lucasfilm, and that's been the news recently because uh, as the recording of this podcast, it has not been that long since Disney announced its intention to acquire Lucasfilm for the princely sum of four point zero five billion with a B dollars. In stocks all of, mostly
1: all of which apparently will be donated to George Lucas's educational charity
0: right yeah it's pretty phenomenal George Lucas back in 2010 pledged that he was going to dedicate his wealth to uh philanthropic endeavors mostly do uh, to um more mostly toward education uh which kind of it's nice it, it shows that he's following in the same sort of vein as other uh notable rich people and philanthropists like uh Bill Gates yeah, and that's
1: not really what the uh, the podcast is about. We're not talking about George and and things. But I no. I did want to throw that in there simply because that was a a pretty amazing thing to do. It's a very not cool, everyone would do
0: that. Very cool thing to do. Uh, it almost makes me not want to criticize him for some of the decisions he's made.
1: Well, I, I think it gives us a picture of who he is as a person. Yes, and although uh, he does see himself, I think as a as someone who. <sighs> Uh, is, is empowered to revise things that were previously released. Yeah. Uh, and and that, had, that has infuriated a lot of people, yeah. among other things that he's done. But, I, you know, I get the sense too that, hey, he's not a bad guy. Of course, that's what he wants us to think, but.
0: Well, come on. Come I mean, on. Come on. How, how who's going to go to the extent of. Of donating the majority of their wealth to education in that, order to convince the world they're not a bad guy. He's clearly a good guy. I, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> so but, I mean, uh, he's a better guy than I am. Yeah. So, so well, well done, Mister Lucas. But, but yeah, I mean, he's he's also the same
1: kind of person that uh, is a, driven creatively. Yes, uh, he's he's willing to come up with uh, complete new. Uh, businesses to yeah. support his creative habits, we, we might say. And even though we may not necessarily agree with them, I would argue I would say personally, for me, that um, you know, his heart's in the right place. He's trying to create a good story. Yeah. And it doesn't always pan out. You
0: gotta, you gotta, it sounds like me. You gotta remember back all right, so he, he founded Industrial Light and Magic yes. in nineteen seventy five. Yes. Now that's two years before the release of Star Wars A New Hope, one of the best documentaries ever to be made.
1: Well, he um, as a filmmaker. Now, his his filmmaking career began before that. Yes, um, but he, you know, American Graffiti wasn't exactly um,
0: a. um, It it wasn't as it wasn't a positive experience. Overall, it wasn't
1: wasn't a a special effects driven masterpiece. Right. Uh, You know, it was a very good film. I liked it, but um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the kind of film that that George Lucas has uh, come to be known for. Well, the, yeah. the mega super effects blockbuster, which, uh, many would argue that he is responsible for and in part due to industrial light and magic.
0: Yeah, really the, the two people I think who are responsible for the blockbuster special effects extravaganza are Lucas and Spielberg. And yes. And of course Spielberg has had quite a bit of involvement in, uh, several of Lucas's endeavors. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he, so he, f- he founded this visual effects company and it was partly because Lucas, uh, he, he knew he wanted to do things a certain way. Yes. And in order to do that, he wanted to limit his dependence upon other companies as much as possible. Yeah. So he started to make stuff. He said, well, there's no visual effects company out there that, that is going to do the stuff I need to have done. Yeah. So I'm going to make it myself. And uh, so he, he's, he, he's kind of a hacker. Yeah, it really is. In light. a lot of ways. And, and, uh, this was all due to necessity. You know, he wanted to have as much control over the, the project as possible. And in order to do that, it meant that he had to build all this stuff. Yes. And so he set out to do it, and that's exactly what he did. It's kind of amazing. Well, there's a, um, you know, the Industrial Light and Magic has been responsible for many different, uh, advances in movie making technology over the years. Yes. Back in 1975, one of the first things they developed was the, uh, Dikstra Flex camera system. Ah. It's named after John Dixtra, who was actually the lead designer on this camera design. Uh, and it's, it was made because if you've, if, well, it's kind of hard to say. Like if you, if you saw the Star Wars A New Hope back in its cinematic release version, this is pre-special edition. Uh, all the effects there for things like the ship battles and stuff, all, all the, all the ships, all the, the, the Death Star stuff, all of that was made with, uh, practical effects. Yes. Practical miniature, uh, models that, so, so the X Wings going through the trench and Death Star, that was all done with miniatures. So this is pre computer generated special effects in that sense. Yeah. And the
1: sound too, the, uh, the orchestra, uh, <laughs> would, you know, they would put these models on the dolly and then the orchestra would be on a dolly behind them playing the music.
0: No, that's gone a little too far, there,
1: Chris. But but this a long way to go for a, a bad joke. This too. this
0: camera, this camera was uh, was special because in order to get the effect that Lucas wanted, he wanted the uh, spaceship scenes to look like uh, like dogfights, like airplane dogfights from uh, World War II movies. Yeah,
1: and and the reason that those uh, that that film, uh, and we're we're talking about existing film. Yeah. The reason that that film is so effective, I think, is because it's been it was shot by another airplane in the air at the same time as a dogfight, and this this uh, motion control photography that ILM developed for this um, used uh, basically was using cameras that moved in with the spaceship models. Yeah. So it appeared that you were flying in the, in the dogfights between uh the different fighters or the Millennium Falcon and the TIE fighters.
0: Yeah. So they they would
1: there was a real sense of movement.
0: Right. Right. The camera was mounted on a crane and the crane was mounted on a dolly track. So the don't do a hello dolly joke. I didn't say a word. Okay. okay. Uh so anyway the, the so the crane could move back and forth along this track. The camera could could move in various ways to adjust the the pitch or the tilt of the uh, of the camera's angle so it could follow the motions of the miniature and make it you know, have this this really swoopy effect where, like Chris was saying, you're following the action very closely. And uh, it was a necessity for him to achieve the effect he wanted. So he builds this thing. Actually, he puts John Dixter in charge of it, and John and his team built it. I call him John Smart. Uh and they they shoot the movie and in 1977 Star Wars New Hope hits theaters and becomes an amazing success. Like the two movies that that really launched the uh era of blockbuster summer hits were Jaws and Star Wars.
1: Yeah. Um and uh, uh you know what you <sighs> get when you come up with a, a new kind of special effects technology. An Academy Award? Yes. They won that for visual, visual effects in 1977. John Steers, I, I think of him as Dijkstra, John Dykstra, Richard Edlund, well Grant, Mc, Grant McCune, and Robert Blalick, or See, Blalock.
0: See, th- I can't, can't say any of their names. I'm just going to call them uh, John. The, the guys. They're all John now.
1: <clears throat> yeah, as a uh, matter of fact, uh, they, they also got a Special Achievement Award in 1980.
0: Or visual effects. Right. But before we get to 1980, something happens in 1979 that I want to talk about. Something something special. Okay. There was a special division formed in 1979 in Industrial Light and Magic. That division was called the Graphics Group, uh, specializing in computer animation and effects.
1: Wait, I, I feel like I should know who these guys are. When
0: we get to 1986, it'll all become clear. But yeah, in 1979, the division, the graphics group forms an industrial light and magic. That division will become incredibly important and influential in, uh, uh, but oddly enough, their most influential days will be after they leave Lucasfilm. Yes. And uh, industrial light and magic. So moving on. Uh, 1980, that's when uh, Empire Strikes Back, uh, the second greatest documentary. Actually, I think that people would argue that's better than Star Wars. Most people. Uh, you know, I actually prefer A New Hope to Empire, but I really love Empire, too. It's just one of those things where, you know, A uh, New Hope really resonates with me. But Empire's great. So Empire Strikes Back comes out. They do win these special uh, achievement Academy Award for visual effects for that. In 1981, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark comes out. Now that was another um, uh, uh, project that uh, had Spielberg's involvement and they won the Academy Award for visual effects for that. Uh, They also made a movie, did you ever see Dragon Slayer? No. Okay, so I saw Dragon Slayer back when I was a kid. Dragon Slayer is a fantasy film and it's pretty much what you would think it is. It's a story about a uh, a young hero who uh sets out to slay a dragon. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the gist. Yeah. So they designed a new kind of filmmaking for this as well. They decided that uh there's a problem with working with uh uh practical effects for monsters that are um, that go beyond like something someone in just a suit, right? Cuz one of the things you could do is you could do stop motion animation. To create a, a monster effect because you know, it's 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 hard to build a giant monster.
1: Yeah. So, and it it really it's hard to make it look right too. Yeah. It takes a lot of work. If I I've, I've shown my kids older monster movie yeah. bits, and it, it's kind of easy to. On the one hand, when you grew up with pre-ILM movies and technology, and and Jonathan and I probably barely qualify yeah. for that. But, you know, you look at some of the old monster movies and you could see the zipper marks in the costumes right. and the older stuff. You don't, you're not freaked out by that anymore. But, you know, the practical effects... um could be done very very well and even when they're done very very well it still doesn't have the same effect that the newer ones do. Right. And uh, just it, it's it's just weird to think about now. But yeah, I mean looking at the new stuff, it looks so very very real.
0: Yeah, well back then, you know, with the practical effects that's pretty much all they had at their their disposal at this point uh back in 1981, uh they developed something called go motion. And go motion uh, the way that they explain it on the Industrial Light and Magic website is that it worked by fusing, quote, both electronic and mechanical components into a device that could record the dragon in Dragon Slayer's movements based on an animator's design and play them back so the camera could capture them as they occurred. So, uh, the reason for this is because, uh, if they, if they were to do it in traditional stop motion, there'd be no motion blur when something moves quickly. because Because yes. all you're doing is just taking a bunch of individual photographs, really, of objects that are not in motion, and then you're playing them back to make it look like the object was in motion. Yes. To get motion blur, the thing actually needs to be moving. It helps. But that's not how stop motion works, because the name. Stop. Anyway, it was an interesting uh, development. It was something that they had um uh, uh created to again to meet the needs of the project uh that without having to you know completely reinvent everything yes uh 1982 uh they they got another academy award um I'm not going to go through every academy award industrial light and magic has won because no. that would be ridiculous but they got it for one of my favorite films as a kid growing up which was uh E.T. the extraterrestrial yes I loved this movie as a kid. Uh I think I must have seen it 3 or 4 times the summer that uh it came out and I probably cried my eyes out every single time I watched it cuz I'm a sap. I've been a sap all my life. I still am a sap. I probably could watch ET without crying now, but back as a kid there was just no hope. Um but anyway, that that was a another very popular film uh, made by uh, uh Lucas and Spielberg. So Uh, And, of course, we should point out uh, Lucas's involvement in some of these films is more of a kind of advisory sort of role. Uh, Industrial Light and Magic worked on lots of projects, not just Lucasfilm projects, which is why, you know, E.T. is an Amblin project, not Lucasfilm.
1: Well, I wanted to point that out, too, that it would have been easy for George Lucas to restrict Industrial Light and Magic to working on his films.
0: Yeah, but then we would have hardly any of them because he didn't do very many.
1: Well, that I mean that that's part of it, but I mean he could have he could have done say uh the Indiana Jones films and the Star Wars films, stuff that he was intimately more intimately involved with. Yeah. Um you know, the projects that he and Spielberg worked on together in some capacity, but he you know, they they decided to spin this off into its own company. And in doing so, they made I, I would argue that they made film richer for it. I mean, you could say that, you know, working on, on Star Trek II. Um,
0: yeah, you know, that The w- Wrath of Khan. And One it, of the greatest documentaries ever made, <sighs> ever. Boy. Um,
1: so you might say, well, you know, Star there, there's this whole Star Wars versus Star Trek, which I think is silly anyway, um, personally. <clears> but, you know, they you might say, well, you wouldn't necessarily, you might want, Star Wars to be the dominant, uh, science fiction space franchise, you know, why would you let him work on Star Trek? Well, I think, like I said, it really populated film with the DNA of industrial light and magic and made them the powerhouse that they are now. Um, and yeah, I mean, they got a nomination for that too. Um, they, they did other work for other, uh, of the uh, Star Wars and Star Trek films and and going through you could see this in their the timeline on the Industrial Light and Magic website. Yeah. Um but yeah, they they really and they got in, involved in stuff now, now you would say also these films are going to be heavily dependent on uh special effects. And you would expect that to be so. But um on other stuff like um you know, you would see it, too, for things like Back to the Future, the Back to the Future franchise. Right. But he also worked on, they, uh, Industrial Light and Magic also worked on stuff like uh, Out of Africa. Yeah. And Young Sherlock Holmes. Uh, stuff that had special effects, but some of this stuff is less special effect driven. The special effect, the special and special effects in this case is making it look photorealistic. Right. Rather than looking fantastic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. um yeah, I I agree. The uh and and you know, there are other analogs we can compare this to like the Weta workshop which did all the work for the Lord of the Rings movies and The Hobbit. Yes. has also done work for other uh other uh, production companies. That's so they have done designed for lots of stuff, not just the um Peter Jackson productions. So there are other similarities there. Um I'm glad you mentioned young Sherlock Holmes in 1985. Uh, ILM uh, achieved something no one had done before. They created the first computer generated character in a film, fully computer generated character. Uh, a uh this, stained glass man. The stained glass man from Young Sherlock Holmes. Uh in this case what's happening uh for those of you oh. who have not seen Young Sherlock Holmes, uh, which is a pretty good movie. Uh, it's slowly paced, but it's I enjoyed it. Uh it's it's got a lot of cute references in it. To, that clue you into the the man that Holmes will become, and actually the man that Watson will become as well. Though it really messes up their ages. Anyway, uh, there's there's this the the plot involves this stuff, this substance that causes people to hallucinate, and they hallucinate these terrifying visions that drive them to essentially suicide. And in this particular case, it's a character who is uh, looking. Uh, he's he's in a building with stained glass windows, and one of the stained glass figures comes to life jumping out of the window and it's a knight that is made out of stained glass that uh, stalks the guy so that's the uh the scene and that was the first use of a computer a fully computer-generated character in a film look
1: who's stalking
0: nice (laughs) working remotely where you are shouldn't dictate what you do work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data wi-fi hotspot with at&t in-car wi-fi Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in 1986, here's where the uh, the spinoff happens that um that I uh, I mentioned. So back in 79, they had the graphics group division, In 86, Lucasfilm spins off the graphics group division as its own company with a a, a healthy dose of funding from a certain Mister Steve Jobs,
1: who and- had. Uh- kind of lost his
0: job yeah he he was uh he had a gig he, and then uh they they cut him loose yeah he he had he just founded apple and then got pushed off to the very edges of that company and essentially thank they, you very much they get out they kind of fired him without saying he's fired and then he he said all right i guess i'm going and he left and then uh but yeah he he poured in a great deal of money to the graphics group which became pixar yes um uh, so Pixar at this time was again really kind of pioneering computer graphics computer animation. Uh it would of course be several years before um, Pixar would enter in its uh its long and uh, fruitful relationship with Disney. Yes. So uh but and that that did have its you know start way back then. And yeah, they were um,
1: of course they weren't what they are now. But, uh, you know, and you might say, I can't believe that George Lucas allowed this to happen. But at the time, it probably wasn't so clear cut. Yeah. I mean, it was very expensive to do what they were doing.
0: Yeah. And yeah, uh, there, there, were, there were no clear indicators at that time. I mean... Computer if,
1: hardware wasn't what it is now either.
0: It'd be a good long decade before you start to see this really kind of pay off. But, yeah, boy, did it. Oh, yeah. So in 1988... Uh, uh, Industrial Light Magic entered in with a partnership with a uh, a little company called Kodak, which, uh, of course, has seen some hard times recently. But Kodak and ILM uh, produced the first uh, high-resolution film input scanner. Yes. Now, this was important because what it could let you do is digitally scan film. Then you could edit it with a computer, and then you would print it back out onto film and uh, you wouldn't uh, have to do all those edits manually using the traditional methods of, of uh, cutting film and editing that way. Yeah. So it gave a lot more versatility to the editing process. And you, you guys may not be aware of this, but it really is true that films are made in the editing booth. Yeah. That y- you can shoot hours and hours and hours of footage of actors doing lines and and, uh, and running around and explosions and whatever. But until you get into the editing booth and put it all together, you do not have a movie. And in fact, I have seen evidence of amazing films coming from what you would imagine to be uh, worthless footage. And it's all due to an, a really creative editor finding ways to make something interesting when before, like, you might watch a, a sequence that originally was 12 minutes long, and you think, wow, this is unusable. And then an editor gets a hold of it and cuts it down to, like, seven and a half minutes, and suddenly it's phenomenal. And so uh, this is one of those important developments in the industry. Now, granted, this is only important as long as film remains a factor, and, of course, that doesn't always hold true. We've got a lot of digital productions out there. In fact, almost everything's digital now.
1: Yeah, and now, of course, uh, hmm, thanks to... Who, who was that? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, <laughs> foreshadowing. Uh, yeah, the, it, although this device used a charged couple device, uh, <coughs> image sensor, it was not uh, a, a digital camera in the way that we think of
0: now. Yeah, no, this was a, a scanner, so it was, you know, you, you, you did use a film camera first, yeah. And then use the scanner and then it would again put film out so that, you know, the projectors. Projector you no, know, the it. projectors we use were film projectors. They weren't digital yet. So uh yeah, going fully digital was not a viable option at this point. Um nineteen eighty nine, they created the first computer generated three dimensional fluid based character. And boy, how many fluid based characters I have loved in the cinema over the years. I can't Think of any right now, apart from the alien water creature from the abyss, which is what this is talking about.
1: Yes. Now I saw, well, I don't know if you, if you argue that the terminators being sort of liquid metal. Okay.
0: Yeah. And we'll get to the terminators as well. But yeah, I guess so. So the T1000s, t- that's really and an yeah. higher. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. So about,
1: liquid I'm metal, wondering. you know, no, it was, uh, I remember I saw the abyss in the theater. Yeah. And I remember not thinking as much of the plot as I would have liked to have, but the-
0: The effects were amazing.
1: The effects were amazing. Yeah. And I still remember watching, um, well, I shouldn't, I suppose I shouldn't give away one spoiler, but the pseudopod actually gets, um-
0: It's it's a movie that came out in 1989. Okay. I think spoilers don't apply anymore. Yeah, when the door
1: shuts and cuts the pseudopod.
0: What? I haven't to that it. point yet. I I just got to the point where the door's open and the pseudopod's right there and it's friends and I thought they were all going to have a picnic. And
1: anyway. so the pseudopod, when it gets cut, turns into real water. Yeah.
0: And, and it hits the floor. The floor. Um, just, it was amazing. It was fantastic. Well, yeah, and that, that was one of those challenges. I mean, there are several things that have been challenges for computer graphics artists to recreate in a, a photorealistic way. Water was one of them. Fire is another one. Hair. Hair is a big one. So, uh, there are a lot of, uh, fire, fire. A lot of challenges that, that, that various people working on computer graphics have had to try and find a way of, uh, of designing so that it has that realistic feel on camera. And of course Pixar was doing a lot of this too. And around the same time. So in 91, uh, they created the first uh, computer graphics main character. This is the one you were referring to, the T-1000. Yes. So that was in 91 and in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which uh, I, I remember I liked it a lot when it came out. And as the years go on, I start to uh, change my opinion on that, mainly because of my love for the first film, even as schlocky and goofy as it is, because uh, they kind of uh, totally changed the T-character. Terminator character in that one. Anyway, 92. They won their uh, uh, 12th Academy Award for a computer graphics work, which is pretty amazing. They also had the uh, first time they with uh, human skin texture. Oh, yes. Uh, computer-generated human skin texture. This was for the movie Death Becomes Her. Yep. Did you see that one? No, I haven't. I have. Great effects, and it's an interesting concept, but I don't know. Just did not click with me, but but again, you and a lot of other people, the effects were amazing. So that's undeniable. The actual film, however, it left me a little uh, cold. Death becomes her. It's a bit stiff.
1: Ninety three. Yeah, there wasn't. That was a short time later when they (sighs) uh, actually created a uh, character that seemed to breathe. Right. Uh, with skin, muscles,
0: and texture. Yeah, this is a Jurassic Park. Now, Jurassic Park was one of those movies, again, that when it first came out, I remember that people were just completely stunned yes. with the quality of the of the digital dinosaurs in that those movies. Because you would watch scenes and you'd think, okay, that had to be practical. They must have built a giant robot dinosaur for this scene. And then most times that was not the case. It was all computer-generated. From today's standards, if you were to go back and watch Jurassic Park, i say it it largely holds up. Yeah, I would would say so. But there are definitely bits where you'll think, okay, I can kind of tell that's computer-generated. Apart from the fact that, yes, we know that dinosaurs aren't walking around right now, beyond that, I can tell it's computer-generated. And there are a couple scenes that are... More obvious than others, but you got to think. You know, for for 1993, it was a a pretty phenomenal achievement. And like I said, it it more it it holds up more than it doesn't.
1: Right, right. Uh, now, again, another short jump to uh, a film where they did their first computer graphic, uh, photorealistic hair and fur.
0: Yep. Jumanji. Um, In
1: 1995.
0: Yeah, and, uh, it's interesting because they, they had a a great model to work from with, uh, Robin Williams, who is probably the hairiest, furriest man on the planet. You're looking at me funny. Uh, that was a, that was a joke. That was a joke. He is a hairy man, but that's a joke. Yeah, Yeah, you'll make
1: jokes about that. They,
0: they created the, uh, the effects for all these computer generated animals and these animals were supposed to look not they were supposed to look like a almost a, a slight fantasy version of the real animal because the idea was these were all generated from this magical board game. Yes, and so it wasn't. They didn't need to look exactly like the real world version of those animals. They needed to look a little hyper realistic, but not so much as to be distracting. So right. that was the goal they had for that film. Um, they also created. Uh, the first synthetic speaking character with distinct personality. <laughs> so how they worded on their timeline, that would yep. be Casper from Casper, the ghost, which, uh, uh, good, g- g- ghost. I did not watch, but no, it, it, these were, this was a case where you're talking about a computer generated character that not only appears on screen, but has a large and important presence in the film and has to be able to convey emotion and meaning and motive. Uh, And so that's, you know, that's more challenging than creating something that looks real. You have to have something that's behaving in a realistic way and a believable way so that the audience has an emotional connection with that character. Yeah. And that that's not easy to do. I mean, computer animators and animators in general will tell you, you know, once you develop that kind of style where you can create that on a a reliable basis... It's an amazingly effective and useful tool, and before you get there, it is just a painstaking process, thinking, well, you know, I, I created this character, and the sad thing happens to this character, but no one seems to care. Yeah. its I mean, it's a tricky thing to to be able to invoke empathy in your audience. Uh, 98, they were awarded – ILM was awarded two patents for some techniques. One was for hair, fur, and feathers – uh, in this case, it was the hair fur and feathers effects they made for another movie, Mighty Joe Young, which was a remake. Uh, yes, I saw the original Mighty Joe Young way back when I didn't see the remake. um this one was hair raising. I'm sure it was. and the other one was for facial animation, which was again uh, created originally for the film Casper, but was also used on other movies like Men in Black, okay. Uh, in 99, they, uh, created the most realistic digital human character ever seen in film. Which was not the daddy, it was the mummy. Chris is not having a great morning right now. <laughs> hey, I, I just listened, by the way, slight tangent. I just listened to one of our older episodes and, uh, and you, ground my my will to live into the dirt with your puns. So you're going to sit here and you're going to mm-hmm. you're going to you're going to endure all right. this. All right. All right, 2000. Uh, that was with the the real-time on-character motion capture system developed for Star Wars Episode 1. So this yes. is this is where they have someone Jonathan's favorite movie of all time. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah. Star Wars Episode 1: The Phantom Menace, which <clears throat> I'll say this I think it's the best of the prequels. All know. right. Uh, that's as much praise as I can give it. But anyway... Uh, also, it has Jar Jar. So do the other two prequels. It also has Darth Vader saying, yippee. And I still say it's better than the other two. Um, but that's neither here nor there. What they developed was this motion capture system that worked in real time. Now, this is really useful in that you could get an actor... Wearing a special suit that would have sensors on it, or really it's not even sensors, it's just points of reference for a camera to pick up. Uh, and then the actor could physically portray a, a performance within a space, and then they take that information that the actor has created by moving through the space and the mm-hmm. camera picks up, they feed it through software, and that becomes the guideline for the computer-generated character that will replace the physical actor who was moving through there. Jar Jar is an example of that. That was yep. one of the, the characters that uh, that used this, um, this technology to create the performance. Now, while I do not much care for the character of Jar Jar, I do admit that it was an interesting uh, use of technology to be able to to give a computer-generated character more of a physical performance by actually mapping it to someone's real movements. Yeah. Because otherwise, you've got animators trying to simulate real movements as best they can. And sometimes it works great. And you watch it and you think, oh, well, that looks real. And sometimes you're like, huh, that doesn't look right at all.
1: Yeah, they're going to use this technique again in some of the movies that are coming up uh, to, to... Pardon my pun. Great effect. Um, some of my m- my favorite recent, more recent movies.
0: Yep. They also began to uh, develop other stuff in two thousand one. They developed ambient occlusion. Yeah, that's uh, well. It's just what it sounds like. Yeah. Oh. What, which, <laughs> there you go. They actually used this in the movie Pearl Harbor. I like it's just what it sounds like. I have no idea what you mean.
1: <laughs> Basically, they were using a combination of light and shadows. Right. Yes. Yeah, so um, that made. The lighting appear realistic um yeah. through the use of computer graphics and uh they they really it really showed uh showed up for the first time in pearl harbor the, yes the, the movie the movie not not the actual the actual pearl harbor not yeah.
0: not the place nor the historical event
1: yes, but they uh yeah i mean with the the planes and the attack on the um the American fleet and that you know in the early morning hours
0: yeah um you know it required a lot of clever lighting. Yeah, and shadows. Yeah, you're talking about explosions. You're talking about shadows being cast by lots of different objects. You're talking about smoke. I mean, there's there are a lot of effects here that we kind of, you know, you, you take for granted when you watch it on a film, but to be able to recreate it realistically in a computer environment is not easy. And uh, that mm-hmm. that's what a lot of this technology went toward. That same year, they also created on-set Visualization processes that would allow uh, a filmmaker to put actors into a uh, an environment, let's say like a big green screen environment, and look at the virtual sets around the real actors, complete with the actual camera motions. Um, this was uh, this is useful when you're making a movie where a lot of the backgrounds you create are digitally inserted. It's not, hmm. it's not a computer animated film. It's still a live action film, but the, uh, the, the sets might be virtual. And we saw this in a lot of the movies, like a lot of the Star Wars prequels had it. Mm-hmm. The example they give specifically within the ILM timeline is with Steven Spielberg's movie AI. Uh, yeah. Artificial intelligence. Uh, it's another letdown. There's a lot of movies here that I didn't really care for so much. Yeah. Yeah. But Back to the Future, I loved. So there's there's that. And Jurassic Park. I love that too. So it's okay. I'll just keep going. All right. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Two thousand three, or did, were you were about to say something. I'm well, sorry. Well, I was going to point
1: out that the uh, for the ambient occlusion uh, thing, they they do point out that um, a few years later, in 2010, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences gave them a Tech Award for yes. the ways in which ambient occlusion helped advanced computer graphics in the motion picture industry. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, you know, looking at it in retrospect, it may not have seemed like a big deal at the time. It may have seemed, well, that, that movie is lit and, you know, shadowed very well, but um, it has played a, a significant role in many, many other films since then, so.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, just
1: before we went too far.
0: Sure. These these developments they're making are uh, things that are, are pushing forward the filmmaking industry across the entire industry, not just for a single movie. Yeah. Uh, it really, ILM has done a lot to shape the way movies are today. Uh, without their influence, I would say that we'd be, we'd have very different films right now mm-hmm. if it were not for Industrial Light and Magic. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that they would be better or worse, but they would certainly be different. It would look different, that's for sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you mentioned the 2003, uh, or you mentioned the awards. They also got an award for, um, the way that they found uh, to render skin or translucent materials uh, from uh, the, the the good old SciTech Award. They also, in 2004, created a digital baby <laughs> for a Lemony Snicket. Lemony ah, Snicket's yes. a series of unfortunate events. And it was, uh, this marked, according to ILM, the first time that you had a computer-generated human character shown in extreme close-up. Ah, yes. So we're getting to the point now where photorealistic computer-generated characters are within the the realm of possibility for a serious filmmaker. Yeah. Um, to, the, to the point where it's not necessarily going to be distracting when you watch it and you think, wow, that does not look real. That doesn't mean that everyone pulls it off successfully these days, but at least it's much more possible. Uh, 2006, they developed IMOCAP which was an image-based performance capture system. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was for one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And uh, that same year, 2006, was when Disney made an acquisition. Disney purchased Pixar. So you remember back in 1986, that's when Pixar struck out on its own. Not not struck out in the baseball sense, but set out right. on, as its own company uh, under the, uh, the, the financial support of Steve Jobs. Well, 2006, Disney makes a move to acquire that company, Pixar. Uh, Disney and Pixar had already been making several movies together for several years. And, uh, it was a, it was a strategic move to guarantee that Pixar would remain under the Disney family. And that also, it was kind of a a talent grab. Because John Lasseter, who was the head of Pixar at the time, would become the creative head of Walt Disney Animation yep. as well as, uh, Imagineering. So, um, that, that little acquisition was made for $7.4 billion in stocks and other assets. So that made, uh, Steve Jobs the, largest shareholder in Disney at that time. Yep,
1: and put him on the board of directors, too, if yeah. I'm not mistaken.
0: $7.4 Now, that, to me, is interesting because uh, we already mentioned, you know, Disney's buying or trying to buy Lucasfilm. As of the recording of this podcast, the deal has not been approved, but uh, Disney would be purchasing them for $4.05 So you've got a division, a former division of Lucasfilm uh, sold for uh, not quite twice as much as what the parent company sold for. Right. That's interesting. So, 2007, uh, at this point, ILM is working on creating a, a system to simulate fluid motion. And this again is tricky. You know, we talked about getting a water effect is, is, uh, challenging. And that's true. It's also challenging to simulate fluid mechanics especially you're talking about huge quantities you know with uh with the pirates of the caribbean movies you're talking about ships on the ocean so you need to be able to simulate the way the ocean really moves and the way that objects floating or uh otherwise you know somehow in the water how they would move as well so uh they did a a a lot of work in 2007 to perfect that technique
1: yeah, they actually used a, a particular system that they called Xeno and, uh, an engine, a graphics engine called FizzBam. Yep. Um, and this, uh, this was the series I was uh, mentioning a few minutes ago because they, they modeled these effects within what they were calling a virtual water tank. But of course, in the, in the last, uh, in the second and third movies in the installment, um, there were lots of appearances by, uh, Davy Jones and his uh daydream believers? No. Oh. Uh uh his crew which were who had taken on aspects of sea life yes. as they lived underwater. Yep. Um and they uh there's an, a really cool picture out there where they show the uh motion capture um sticker things that they put on the the actors to uh while they are, you know, pretending to be, or they're acting as the crew. Right. And it's it's kind of cool, because you go, wait, they don't have giant fish heads on. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, how they did that, and, and the amazing sea battle effects and all the things, the uh, the giant maelstrom, um, uh, just amazing stuff. And then, yeah. of course, you know, the uh, kraken.
0: Yep. And in 2008, uh, they began to work on Fez, because Fezes are cool. They are, uh, according to a doctor I know. Also bow ties. Yes, uh, but uh, no. Fez was the name of uh, a, a a facial animation system that they had been working on, and again, this is to refine that that ability to capture an actor's performance to translate it to a computer generated character. Mm-hmm. This is one of those things that really is problematic. It's inter- it's an interesting question to ask. Who is ultimately responsible for a computer-generated character's performance? Um, Because if you have a performance within a film that is award-worthy, but it's a computer-generated character, who do you give the award to? Right. Do you give it to the animator who built the – or the people who built the textures and rendered everything and, and made it you – know, uh, made, made sure they made all the tweaks to make the character look exactly the way the character looks? Do you give it to the actor who physically portrayed that character and it's that actor's movements that you are watching even though it's a different uh, uh, computer-generated body that's doing the motions – Ultimately, it was an actor who went through those motions. Uh, is it the voice actor who may or may not be the same person who did the physical motions? Uh, it's a it's a complicated question because the performance comes from so many different people working together to create this thing you're watching. And I know that that was one of those questions that came up during the Lord of the Rings movies because there were people who were saying that uh, Andy Serkis should be nominated for his performance as Gollum. In those movies, but how much of that performance would you say is his versus the animators who created the? uh, Well, I I hesitate to use the word physical, but the the visual version of the character that you see on the screen, and it's I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. It may very well mean that one day we'll see a new category of award come up where it's best performance of some sort, as opposed to just best actor or best supporting actor or actress.
1: Yes!
0: Wow, you waited all that time just to do that. Alright, 2009! <laughs> uh, we had the, uh, the Vert GPU engine, which, uh, was designed to create firestorms. So again, you know, looking at the stuff that's hard to make look real on, uh, computer graphics. You know, fire and water, those are big. And fur, those are the big ones.
1: Yeah, well, they, uh, they're working on the, the Harry Potter series of movies. Yep. And they for the 6th uh, film they really needed to be able to have realistic fire effects. So, you know, it's it's the ILM way when if you don't have a system that already does it, go build one.
0: Yep. Well, and they did. And so this kind of uh wraps up where they are today. I mean, we, ILM is not the only property outside of Lucasfilm that uh, will be acquired by Disney if this deal goes through. Skywalker Sound is also in there. And you know, Lucas has, like we said, he's had a huge influence on the way movies are shown today. I mean, THX is another example, uh, Ooh. which Disney is also going to get. So I mean, really, when it comes down to the, the technology behind filmmaking and film projection, film screening, Disney's making a huge move here and and uh, some people are a little nervous about it. I've got friends who work in effects. Uh they work for for effect houses that uh, often will get contracted to work on companies. Um and some of these friends of mine are a little nervous because this is sort of showing a, a consolidation of effects houses and that could mean less competition and fewer opportunities for these uh artists. So there are things to to worry about. Uh Depending upon what field you are in,
1: yeah, but nonetheless, I, I still think it will be interesting to see. And if some of the uh, the people leave, um, you know, they may very well take the ability to uh, do these complex, the knowledge that it takes to to build these complex effects with them, yeah, making the acquisition less valuable. For yeah, there isn't. could. So, yeah, there's always a
0: chance it, that people could strike out and create their own. Uh, Companies as well, and and start competing with their old company. I mean, that's happened several times in the past as well. So yeah, it's too early to say, but some of the movies ILM has worked on, we've talked about, of course, the Star Wars series, all the way from uh, Episode four through six, and then one through three. Uh, the s- several Star Trek films: Generations, First Contact, uh, Star Wars, uh, or Star Trek: uh, Wrath of Khan, which is my favorite of all the Star Trek films because it's very cool. It's space. Yes, it is. With um, fine Corinthian leather. Yeah. The Jurassic Park movies, uh, you know, had, uh, The Mask, Forrest Gump, Twister. Never had I felt that a cow really did fly past someone's windshield until I saw Twister. Moo. Uh, Mission Impossible 3. They, they've worked on many, many, many movies. I mean, if you, if you watch any film that has a lot of special effects in it and you wait to the end, uh, it's amazing how many of them have Industrial Light and Magic listed as at least part of the team that worked on the effects.
1: Also, it's, it's interesting to realize how many films you may not have realized have a lot of special effects in them because the special effects are to make the film look more like real life.
0: Yeah. Um, well, Forrest Gump is a good one, although you could argue that you no, know, no, that's clear because you know Tom Hanks never actually shook hands with that many presidents. Still, but but even so, that's that's one of those where the special effects are there to create the story, but they're not, you know, it's not spectacle the way it would be in a big science fiction film or something.
1: Right. So yeah, they have had a, a monumental effect on yeah, the movie industry.
0: Definitely, and uh, I'm sure they will continue to do so, even uh, whether whether Disney's deal goes through or not. Uh, I'm sure it will remain a big player in the 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 effects industry. Oh yes. All right, we're back, and I wanted to just say that, of course, as we know, Disney did in fact purchase Industrial Light and Magic. It amazes me that that happened back in 2012, because I'm really bad at ordering big events in chronological order in my mind. In my mind, Chris had already left as co-host, and Disney had not even thought about buying Lucasfilm at that time. Obviously, that's not the case, but that's not how I remember it just shows me that my memory is faulty. Also, I wanted to mention, of course, I made a joke about Robin Williams in this episode, and I miss Robin Williams very much. I even thought about leaving in a note to say, cut the joke about Robin Williams. But I think, considering who Robin Williams was and his sort of irreverent sense of humor, that it's more of a nice tribute to leave it in than to cut it out. So that's why I did not cut out that joke. I also wanted to talk about some of the movies Industrial Light and Magic has worked on since we published that episode. And this is not an exhaustive list, but just a few to give you an idea of some of the stuff they've worked on. Uh, They did uh, effects for Star Trek Into Darkness, Pacific Rim, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which is my favorite of the Marvel movies so far, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, Avengers, Age of Ultron, Jurassic World, Ant-Man, The Martian, which is great. If you haven't seen The Martian or read the book... Go do one or both of those things. It's a great, fun story. And Star Wars The Force Awakens, of course! They did the effects for that when Star Wars came back. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I thought it was okay. There are other movies that they're working on right now, Captain America Civil War being one of them, the next Star Wars movie, the next couple of Star Wars movies, uh another, and obviously lots of other stuff. So, Industrial Light & Magic still going strong under the command of Disney. Uh, They've even opened up a new studio in Soho in London, so that's pretty exciting too. Anyway, thank you for joining me on this classic episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you enjoyed this look back. And I'll be back with new episodes really soon. If you guys want to get in touch with me, give me suggestions for future topics or guests I should have on the show, interviews, that kind of stuff, let me know. The email address is techstuff at techstuffathowstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. At Facebook and Twitter, I am TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon.